Welcome to Hang Your Hat. This is episode 19. Meet me on the equinox. On August 21st, the United States witnessed a once-in-a-lifetime celestial event. For the first time in 99 years, the U.S. experienced a coast-to-coast total solar eclipse. The next time the U.S. will have a solar eclipse will be in 2024, but it won't be the same coast-to-coast phenomenon that brought us all together on the 21st. Fortunately, there is another celestial phenomenon that is happening soon that we will all be able to participate in. In fact, it happens twice a year, every year, and everyone on Earth experiences it and can participate in the festivities. That is the equinox. Every day, the Earth rotates around on its axis, which you can imagine as a rod running through the center of the Earth and coming out at each pole. The rotation is what creates day and night. The part of the Earth that is faced toward the Sun experiences day, and the part that is faced away from the sun experiences night. At the same time, the Earth is revolving around the sun. While revolving around the sun, the Earth's axis is slightly tilted, about 23 degrees. This tilt is relative to the background stars rather than to the sun itself. If an outside observer were watching the Earth rotate around the sun, the Earth's tilt would look the same throughout the entire revolution around the sun. So if our celestial observer thought that the Earth looked like it was tilted to the right when the Earth was on the right side of the Sun, it would still look like it was tilted to the right when the Earth looked like it was on the left side of the Sun. On the right side of the Sun, it would look like the North Pole was pointed away from the Sun. And on the left side of the Sun, it would look like the North Pole was pointed toward the Sun because the Earth's tilt would remain the same relative to the background stars. The Earth takes one year to travel around the Sun And the way that the Earth is tilted during its course around the Sun is what creates the seasons. When the Northern Hemisphere is in the part of its orbit where it is tilted toward the Sun, it is getting a lot of direct sunlight, which heats things up, giving the Northern Hemisphere the long, warm days of summer. At the same time, the Southern Hemisphere is tilted away from the Sun. The light exposure it gets is more diffuse, and less energy is imparted. Things cool down, the days get shorter, and they have winter. The opposite occurs when the northern hemisphere is pointed away from the sun. It gets the diffuse light in the short days of winter, and the southern hemisphere gets the direct light in the long days of summer. Spring and autumn are the times during which the hemisphere's orientation to the sun is changing. What was pointing toward the sun will soon point away from it. Long summer days become short winter days, or vice versa. During this transitional period, there are two points in the orbit where the Earth's axis is perpendicular to the Sun, when both hemispheres get equal amounts of sunlight. These are the equinoxes. There is one in March that marks the beginning of the spring here in the Northern Hemisphere, and one in September, which marks the beginning of fall. This year, the September equinox will be on the 22nd. The word equinox comes from the Latin words meaning equal and night meaning that the night and the day are of equal length. It is often thought that on the equinox, day and night are of equal length, but this is actually a common misconception. Latitude actually determines the length of night and day, so while there are days that do have roughly equal amounts of day and night, 
those days are probably not going to be on the equinox, even at the equator. And the further away from the equator you get, the farther that date will be from the equinox. At the equator, every day will have roughly equal amounts of day and night, but they will never be completely equal. There will always be more daytime. That's because daytime starts when the first slivers of sun begin to rise above the horizon, and only ends when the last of the sun drops below the horizon. The time that it takes for the sun to fully rise or fully set is added to the daytime and subtracted from the nighttime, so there will always be more daytime at the equator. In addition, the refraction of light through the atmosphere causes the light from the sun to be visible for several minutes before it rises above the horizon, and several minutes after it falls below the horizon. The result is that every day, daytime is about six minutes longer than it would have been without the refraction. But I wouldn't trade it in. It is one of the things that makes our sunrises and sunsets so beautiful. Throughout history and around the world, the end of summer and beginning of fall has been a time of celebration. In Japan, the equinoxes mark the Ohigen period. Ohigen stems from a Buddhist belief that the land of the dead is due west. Ohigen is the period during which the world of the living is thought to be the closest to the world of the dead because on the equinox, the sun sets directly west. It is similar to the Mexican Day of the Dead in that it is used as a time to honor the dead and visit and take care of their graves. This is also when the equinox flower, or spider lily, blooms in Japan. Since it grows a lot in graveyards during this time of year that is so, so closely associated with death, it's also associated with death and the afterlife in Japan. In China and Vietnam, they celebrate the Moon Festival on the full moon nearest to the September equinox. It is a harvest festival that dates back to the Shang Dynasty, about 3,500 years ago. It is a time for friends and family to gather and give thanks. During the Moon Festival, one of the foods that is traditionally eaten is the moon cake. Moon cakes are round pastries about 10 centimeters in diameter and 3 to 4 centimeters thick. That's about four inches by one and a half inches. They are typically filled with red bean paste or lotus seed paste. I thought that moon pies might be associated with a kind of cookie sandwich that is pretty common here in the Southern United States called moon pie, but I couldn't find any relationship between the two. Still, it wouldn't hurt to eat a moon pie during the moon festival if you can't get your hands on an actual moon cake. The Catholic Church also has a feast day that occurs pretty close to the equinox. Michaelmas is celebrated on September 29th, probably because it is close enough to the equinox to lure the pagans away from their pagan equinox celebrations. One of the Michaelmas traditions that all of my sources agreed on was that you're supposed to eat nuts on Michaelmas. As far as I can tell, there is no special symbolism or meaning behind the nuts. But September 14th used to be known as the Devil's Nutting Day, when young men and women would go a-nutting. And yes, that phrase describes more than one of the day's activities. The modern groups that are most associated with celebrating the phases of the sun are pagans and Wiccans. Their equinox celebration is called Mabon, and it is basically a harvest festival. Wiccans celebrate by sharing food, building an altar with 
harvest fruits and veggies, and meditating on balance. Sharing food does consist of feasting with friends and family, like most harvest festivals, but it also includes collecting and donating food to the less fortunate. Apples have a surprisingly big role in the celebration of Mabon. They are used as a food and a craft material, and there are even special harvest rituals that include apples. The reason is that apples are associated with both immortality and death, so like the equinox, it is a symbol of transition. The thing that really struck me about Mabon was its similarity to the church harvest festivals that are so common around Halloween here in the U.S. Like Mabon, they are literally celebrating the harvest. There is an emphasis on gathering with friends and family, often there is a food drive, and there are lots of apples, from apple pie to bobbing for apples. It makes me wonder if, in their attempt to lure parishioners away from the pagan festival of Halloween, the churchgoers are actually more closely emulating a pagan festival than they would have been had they just gone trick-or-treating. Which, by the way, stems from the practice of souling in which the poor would go door-to-door asking for treats called soul cakes in exchange for prayers. While this year's main harvest may be coming to a close, that doesn't mean that you should stop working in the garden. The early fall is the perfect time to start getting your garden ready to look its best next year. Fall is my favorite time of the year. After a long summer hibernating inside avoiding heat stroke here in Florida, the fall is like a breath of fresh air. As soon as we get the first whiff of cooler air, I get the urge to head outside and enjoy nature as well as an inexplicable desire to catch up on all of the work in my garden I have been avoiding during the summer. Fortunately, fall is the perfect time to work in the garden, not only because you can make it really beautiful for the lead up to the holiday season, but because fall is the perfect time to do prep work for the upcoming spring and summer so that your yard is beautiful the whole year round. When your summer blooming annuals start to die off or look a bit straggly, Instead of just leaving your garden bare, plant some cool season annuals like petunias, calendula, or chrysanthemums or pansies to add some color to your yard. They love the cool weather and look great in beds, borders, and containers. It's best to pick garden chrysanthemums over florist chrysanthemums for outdoor planting. The florist variety look really pretty, but they don't survive very well outside. If you live in a warmer climate like mine, there's a lot of fall flowering varieties to choose from, like begonias, zinnias, and snapdragons. One of my favorite fall bloomers are spider lilies, which just happen to be the same equinox flowers so important to Japan's Ohigan period. The ones we see the most down here are bright red with clusters of thin petals that look a bit like spider legs on top of 18-inch stems, but they're much prettier than spiders. They usually appear in early fall as the ground dries out. They thrive on neglect, bloom in the sun or the shade, and will multiply in your garden. They need to be divided every couple of years so they have room to grow, but since they grow from bulbs, they're easy to pass along to a friend, which is kind of a tradition here in the South. Speaking of bulbs, now is the time to dig up and store bulbs that won't survive winter temperatures in your area. Dahlias, caladiums, cannas, and tuberous begonias all need to be stored during the winter in all but very warm zones. Storing bulbs can also be a good idea even in warmer areas that have damp winters, 
because some bulbs will rot in the ground if they stay wet. To store your bulbs, carefully dig them up and brush off all the dirt. Don't wash them with water. Moisture can make them rot. To make sure that they are completely dry, leave the bulbs spread out in a dry location out of direct sun for seven to 10 days. Once the bulbs have cured, trim the foliage down to a half an inch from the top of the bulb and then store them away. Pack up the bulbs in a material that can breathe. I like paper lunch bags, but cardboard boxes are also good. Make sure that the bulbs do not touch each other in their container. They can be separated using paper towels, peat moss, sand, or sawdust. Pretty much anything that will keep the bulbs dry and separated and won't harm them. They keep best in cool and dry locations that won't freeze, like unheated garages or dry basements. You can start planting spring feraling bulbs like tulips, daffodils, and hyacinths once it starts to get noticeably cool during the day, and you can continue planting them until a few weeks before it freezes in your area. If your area, like mine, doesn't really get much of a freeze, then either plant varieties that don't require a chilling period or chill them artificially. You can buy pre-chilled bulbs or you can stick them in the fridge for a while. The length of time will depend on the kind of bulbs, but count on eating at least a month of chilling. Fall is also a great time to add shrubs and trees to your yard. Flowering trees and shrubs like hydrangeas and roses really like the fall weather. It's cool enough that they don't struggle in the heat of the summer and warm enough that they can establish a root system before the ground freezes in the winter. Perennials can also be divided and moved in the fall, which is a good way to fill in bare spots in your yard. Or if you already have enough plants, then share the love. Give your extras to a friend in need. This fall, I'm planning to take some cuttings from my favorite plants to see if I can get them to root inside over the winter. I'm hoping to get a couple more hydrangea, rose, lavender, and rosemary plants to add to my spring garden. If you live in a warm area or areas with late freezes like me, there are a few more things you can do in the fall garden, like replanting your vegetable garden. Cool season vegetables like lettuce, kale, onions, and broccoli thrive in the fall. However, some varieties take longer to grow than others. Make sure whichever variety you get will mature before a freeze is likely in your area. Even if you decide to do nothing in your yard for fall, even if you don't have a yard, try to get outside and enjoy the season. Have a bonfire or roast some s'mores. Do some leaf peeping or watch a sunset and contemplate our place in the universe. For those of you that know that I live in Florida and are wondering about Irma, Yes, we were in the path of Vermont, and everyone is fine. I live in the northern part of Florida, and my town was spared the worst of the wind and rain, so we really didn't have that much flooding or damage. We had no damage to our house, just an awful lot of debris in our yard. The worst damage I have seen so far actually occurred at the house directly behind mine, where two large oak trees fell on it. But fortunately, only very minor damage was done. I feel pretty lucky that the wind was not blowing toward my house. So far, no one I know in my town had any serious damage done to their house, but there are still some people without power. A lot of people I know that are further south or east got fairly significant damage to their homes, and it's going to be a while before the state fully recovers. We've been doing cleanup today and got most of it done, 
And you've probably heard some of the search helicopters and chainsaws from the cleanup in the background during today's show. I want to thank all the emergency service personnel that came to Florida to assist in the cleanup. It really makes a huge difference just knowing that help is on the way. If you are into post-disaster and disaster cleanup pictures, I will have a few from my house on my Jerwarkin Instagram account if you'd like to take a peek. Thanks for listening to the show this week. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. I expect to be back again in two weeks, barring any more hurricanes. In the meantime, you can get in touch at hangyourhatpodcast at gmail.com or at hangyourhatpodcast.com. Today's music was by Andy G. Cohen and can be found on freemusicarchive.org. The Hang Your Hat Podcast is a production of jerwerkincrafts.com. That is G-E-R-W-E-R-K-E-N crafts.com. You can visit Jerwerkincrafts for DIY inspiration, home decor, crafts tutorials, and more.